0: Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm speaking with Bruce Music. Born and raised in South Africa during the Apartheid years, Bruce spent six uh, months living in a local township or ghetto as the only white man in a community of 100,000 black Africans. And this experience touched him really, really profoundly and inspired him to dedicate his entire life to teaching. He is a best-selling author, a seminar leader and coach with more than 20 years' experience and has built up a reputation as the guy marriage therapists refer their toughest, toughest clients to. And is sometimes even referred to as the couple's whisperer bruce is convinced i know <laughs> some title and bruce is convinced that even the toughest relationship problems can be fixed with the right help and his TEDx talk has had more than one and a half million views and his work has been featured on the BBC, the Financial Times, just to name a few. Bruce, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I didn't mention the intro, but this is, this is part two, isn't it? We tried last night. This is part two. We tried
1: yesterday. We had a power failure and we abandoned. It was my fault, but uh, I'm back. And no, but TV. as in, yeah, I was
0: saying it could have been either of us. I think it was like you were saying you're in the Dominican Republic at the moment and your, your, your power, you know, your internet can be dodgy. I'm in Sri Lanka, which they, they love power cups so between one of us something will go wrong so we'll, may, we'll maybe try again a third time tomorrow Holding 20 minutes go to let do it we can do this would you say that most of us are hiding secrets to some degree or presenting a version of ourselves to the world that isn't really you know authentically who we are
1: yes and i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing i just think it's the way that it is it's the way that uh, our survival mechanism has Uh, evolution has designed us to survive. And let me tell you a little bit of kind of backstory about why this is because when I'm saying everybody's a liar, I don't mean it with uh, any malice in my tone of voice at all because I'll be the first to to raise my hand. So what we tend to do as human beings is um, we lie about the small stuff all the time. And how this came about from an evolutionary perspective is that if you imagine being a caveman on the plains of Africa and like you've got your little tribe and you're with your group of people, your tribe is what really keeps you alive. And nature has kind of wired into us or hardwired into us this fear of being ejected from the tribe. Because if we were like rejected from the tribe and left to fend for ourselves on the plains of Africa, you know, within half an hour a lion would come and eat us and we'd be done. So one of the biggest uh, threats to our survival is being ejected from the tribe as far as evolution is concerned. Even if today, in our 21st modern century, that doesn't necessarily uh, uh, present a risk because we can all survive pretty much uh, on our own and find a new tribe if we needed to, Mm -hmm. it's still like that. So in order to prevent ourselves being rejected from the tribe, what we do is we present a mask, our ego, if you like, to the world. And you can think, like, we have this mask and sometimes we wear it really tight and then sometimes we take it off and we allow our authentic self to shine through. And we present our mask to the world as an interface through which we can kind of navigate safely and make sure we never get rejected from the tribe so when somebody says hey how are you doing Duncan you're probably initial response is, I'm doing great I'm awesome you're probably not going to say yeah I'm really sad <laughs> uh, or I'm really I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills at the end of the month and I'm really like anxious about that we don't do that right because um, we're expecting somebody to look at us and go oh weirdo kick Bruce out of, the you know, tribe now junk, and then rejected <laughs> from the tribe right so we lie all the time, and what was that stat from my from my TED talk um, from the Massachusetts professor? Oh, was, yeah, know, um,
0: Robert Feltman, uh, professor of Robert psychology Feltman. at the University of Massachusetts, has um, he said that was it? When when two people meet for the first time, the first time. Uh, within the first ten minutes, they each, on average, lie three times or something like that. So that's right. what, like, within so an hour, that's eighteen times an hour exactly.
1: when we first meet each other. We're presenting some kind of false falseness, and That's all good and well, except that when we're not able to express ourselves authentically in the world, it numbs us. It kills our sense of aliveness. It's like, um, I'm going to use the hosepipe metaphor from my TED talk. So if you imagine we have a hosepipe and this hosepipe kind of flows energy, it's our aliveness, it's what makes us feel alive. When we're not able to be ourselves, it's like there's a kink in the hosepipe and part of our energy can't flow. And the thing is, humans, human beings are so good at adapting that after a while, we get used to the kink, and we forget what it's like to feel alive, and feeling numb just becomes the norm, norm. Yeah. and we forget that actually there's more. And so we walk around life presenting this mask, my mask is called Bruce, yours is called Duncan, um, this mask to the world of who we think we are, and never really interacting heart to heart with each other, we're communicating kind of mask to mask with each other. And an amazing thing happens when you take the mask off and you start telling the truth. That's how you take the mask off. You start telling the truth about what's going on for you minute by minute, moment by moment. You start to feel alive again. That kink in your, in your energy hose part kind of unkinks itself. And energy starts to flow through. And aliveness comes back. And a smile on your face comes back. And happiness comes back. And for me, I think one of the highest leverage things you can do to get to a fulfilled life is to just start telling the truth about what you're experiencing moment by moment. Now, that's like one level, Duncan, and feel free to just interrupt me. and in like... No,
0: no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just sitting back and listening because this is fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> the, the
1: other level is um, what happens when you're actually withholding a big secret. So, if you've got something that you've done that perhaps violated one of your values, or let's say you've had an affair, or perhaps you've stolen money, or something like that, what happens is energetically that weighs down on you, and that you can handle. But the the secondary impact is that the person with whom you violated that trust or with whom you're keeping that secret from, you can no longer be intimate with them anymore. And that's fine when it's somebody you don't care about. Well, you know, I'll go find another friend. But when you're married to that person, or uh, it's a child of yours, or it's family, you can't just push those relationships to the side. And what happens is, like, let's say you've had an affair and you're not talking about it. And this is something that I actually went through myself. I was the one who had an affair, cheated on my wife, didn't talk about it, bloated up, gained 30 pounds in a couple of months, and basically became depressed. If you're withholding something fundamental from somebody you love, there's a massive loss of connection. And that loss of connection will usually result in feeling like you're depressed, you, um, you feel numb, your body perhaps it gets ill, you gain weight. Like, your energy drops and you need to sleep a lot. Um, and my personal belief is that half of depression, like, I mean, when I, when clients come to me and tell me they're depressed, the first thing I go through is, like, ask them, is what are you not telling? What are you not sharing? What are you keeping secret? And when we get to that and they tell that secret, they're like, oh my God, depression's gone. They don't need pills. They don't need anything, you know, they need psychotherapy. It's just, our body knows how to look after itself when we tell the truth, when we're being ourselves. I'm not sure if I'm doing the best job explaining this. No, because, no, you like, did.
0: You did. You, de- you definitely did. Like, it, like honestly, if if, if, that, if that had been crap, I, I would have jumped in and be like, "Okay, Bruce, tell me more about." As I was honestly, I was just listening back because that was yes, yeah, I totally, totally got like all of that, and yeah, because I, I, it was. I, I think you, something you said, I can't remember what it, was. it was. It was something like um, literally, like telling the truth, like you know, truth, like honesty is the best policy. Like it's so simple. But it's terrifying. As in I remember like yeah. it being described yeah. as that. As in, like, it's not rocket science, it's super simple. Yeah. But God, it's terrifying, you know, because these things are often the things, you know, that we're putting under the rug that we're terrified to say, you know, that we, if it was easy, then you know, this would be like, you know, everyone be doing it. But the fact that it's We're terrified
1: because we're gonna be rejected from the tribe or from our relationship, and that is a threat of death as far as your survival system, your amygdala, your reptilian brain is concerned. Yeah. So the brain will throw up like 101 reasons why not to tell the truth. And the most common one I hear, and if any of you listening to this uh, are saying this to yourself, be warned. (laughs) The most common one I hear is like, I don't want to hurt the other person. It would be cruel to tell the truth. That's the biggest cop-out in the world. And I want to tell you why. Because when you're justifying not telling the truth by using the other person's uh, pain as an excuse, you make them small. You turn them into somebody who can't handle the truth. You go, you know what, you're so weak, Duncan, let's say I've got a secret from you and I'm justifying this, what I'm essentially justifying keeping it from you, what I'm essentially saying to you, Duncan, is Duncan, you're so small and you're so weak, you can't handle the truth, in fact, you're a pathetic human being, I can handle the secret, and I'm going to keep it for your sake, because you're so weak and pathetic, (laughs) because the truth hurts, and you don't even know how to handle pain, Duncan, you're such a child, you never even learned how to handle pain, so I'm going to keep it a secret, and not tell you to protect you, because I'm such a good guy. And that's how we justify, like, not telling the truth. We turn the other person into this small, pathetic, weak victim who can't handle the truth. And uh, that way we get to keep our secrets and our pain and our depression and our illness and our numbness
0: at the same time. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, you're, you've, you've, you've damaged and, you know, lost that connection. You're, you're damaging yourself. It's, what, what, what's, what's interesting is, I think you're extremely honest about the fact that, okay, so if we go about and, you know, take this, New approach, okay, you're going to be complete honesty, tell the truth. Um, you know, if we follow this kind of, I don't know, medicine or whatever you call it, like things will probably get a lot worse before they get better, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, because you've trained people to expect lies from you. And, and once people know that you've been lying to them, they're going to be hurt and betrayed. Mm. But at the same time, if you do it properly and you really show that you care and you show that their pain is important to you, you can get through this with actually more integrity. You can come out with them trusting you more for having told the truth and a closer relationship. Um, it's not easy telling the truth. And I don't recommend just blurting out every truth second by second. That's the second objection I have. Well, you know, should I just tell everything that's on my mind to my partner? What if I, like, I look at a pretty girl and I start to think about having sex with her? Should I just tell my wife that every time? Because I look at five pretty girls a day. I want to have sex with all of them. You know? Like, no. There's a, there's a level of appropriateness. And you know, it takes a level of maturity to understand what's appropriate and the timing that's right to do it with. So when I'm working with people, I, I kind of help them set it up in a way that it, it lands the best. But here's how I, to tell whether or not you should be telling this person your secret. If they found out from somebody else, would they be pissed off with you? If the answer to that question is yes, you want to be telling That's that's the way, the little kind of rule of thumb I use. If, if my partner found out about this from somebody else and knew the, and found out you know, my secret, would they be pissed off? And if the answer is yes, I'm telling
0: them. I like it, simple. simple you, can't, yeah, yeah. you can't really, that's black or white. You, know, you can't really justify that to yourself. It's, you, you, you ask yourself that question, you know immediately, yeah, they'd be pissed. So,
1: <laughs> so what ended up happening, just to quickly finish yeah, r- wrap absolutely. up the story, I
0: opened the thread of like, you know,
1: I was cheating on my wife and I was married for five years. And For the last three years of my marriage, I was cheating on her. Um, when I, I, I bloated up and I got fat. I like I was depressed. I was a motivational speaker at the, uh, at the time and standing on stage, inspiring people, and I felt like a complete fraud. So I went and told her the truth, and it was brutal. And at the same time, within a week, I felt more alive than I'd ever felt in my life before. In the end, we both decided together amicably to get divorced. And it was probably the best thing we could have done. A week later, she found or met the man of her dreams who she's married to now and has been married to for quite a while. And that was, what, 2002, so that was 13 years ago. And I haven't felt depressed since that day. Of course, I've had my ups and downs, like everyone, all of us do. But I haven't gone to like, a bout of depression or like, sadness that lasted forever, because I'm no longer suffering. I was able to tell the truth about who I am, and then I went and told, this, you know, shared a TED talk, and told a million and a half people that I cheated on my wife and, uh, you know, used to be a racist. So there's pretty much nothing I'm ashamed of anymore. And living in a space of no shame, I'm able to be to feel completely fulfilled and happy. I can wake up every day knowing that I like who I am. I don't. I'm not hiding who I am. You like me or you don't, and that's okay. You know. And I it's been that. the most freeing thing I've ever done. In fact, that for me, Duncan, part, apart from the credibility and all the side benefits that came from the, the TED Talk, the best thing that ever happened out of that TED Talk was the eradication of all my shame. Because now that all my dirty laundry was out in the open, nobody could say, I know
0: something about you. I had nothing to hide. I could just be me.
1: It was awesome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. One, one thing during, during your, your TED Talk is, um, yeah, I, I'm. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm. You know, I suppose I'm bad that I, I didn't actually know about this. But I found the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Like, for anyone who doesn't know, what was that, and how was that used to heal?
1: Okay, so in my TED Talk, I mentioned the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, yeah. which was a commission that was started by the African government, headed by Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who won a Nobel Peace Prize and has written a book on this whole thing, actually, and. It was like a traveling roadshow that went through South Africa after apartheid, after Nelson Mandela came to power and we had our first elections and we were living in a democratic South Africa for the first time. There was a lot of um, bad shit that happened during apartheid, for want of a better way of putting it. And the armed forces killed people. And Mandela was smart enough to know that if we didn't forgive each other, that nothing would change. We might have democracy on paper but there would still be a lot of hatred and resentment between whites and blacks um, in South Africa. So what they did is, and my statistics may not be accurate here, because it's been a long time since I, I, I read exactly the numbers, but I think they gave everybody a six-month amnesty period. And in in that six months, if you'd committed a crime that was for political gain, gain no matter what it was, whether it was murder, theft, you know, extortion, if it was for the benefit of the country, as far as you were concerned, you could come forth, admit your crime, and you would be pardoned, but you would be pardoned on condition that you made amends for whatever it is you had done, whatever it is you had done. So if you had murdered somebody, you would perhaps have to stand in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and stand trial, and you'd go and you'd apologize to the parents of the person you murdered, or to the wife of the person that you murdered. And the idea was that you would get to um, free your conscience, make amends, and heal the impact that you had had in the community by your actions. And it was controversial. It was like watching the best soap opera you've ever seen in your life. It was moving, touching, and I believe it played a massive role in healing South Africa
0: after our elections in 1994. Yeah. Um, and That and was a pretty smart thing to do and ballsy. Yeah, absolutely, and and is the that sort of idea like is is kind of you know of this obviously some clear parallels in terms of like how we can all hold these personal truth and reconciliation commissions in our own lives, isn't it? Like like what you're saying yeah. about your wife, like you know we can actually take those lessons and then all kind of apply them.
1: Exactly, and that's actually thank you for reminding me and keeping me back on track. That was the whole reason I kind of mentioned that in my TED talk is that that's what we want to be doing in our whole life mm-hmm. in our own lives, having truth and reconciliation commissions, going to the people that we've hurt, the people that we've wronged the people that uh, we've lost um, connection with, that we want to have connection with, and and healing.
0: Yeah. And
1: when you can do that, you have extraordinary relationships. And I believe that our ability to have extraordinary relationships is directly tied into our performance in life. Have you seen, Duncan, have you seen, um, oh man, I forget the guy's name. There's a TED talk that's been doing the rounds recently about uh,
0: drug addiction. Um, Yo- Johan, is it? No. Can they talk Yes, Johan Hari. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, actually yeah. Co- he's actually coming on the show in about a month's time. Oh my God. Please send me an email and remind me because I want to watch that one. Yeah. So, his, in his
1: TED talk, if you type into Google like addiction, Johan Hari, I think it's H-A-R-I, um, he talks about how everything we know about addiction is wrong and that the fundamental cause of addiction or the root cause of addiction is the loss of connection and that in the absence of something to connect to, we will turn to drugs. Now, my whole world is about connection because I work with couples and help them save their marriages. That's my, my job. It's what I do for a living. And what I'm doing is helping people connect. And what i found is that people in isolation get depressed. And just like the rats in the experiments where they were put in a cage alone and they were given the choice between water and heroin-laced water, would go to heroin all the way to connect to the heroin and kill themselves. And then the rats who were kind of given rat park, who were, they were, they were given this kind of this rat theme park, They were given the same two bottles of water, and none of them killed themselves. Um, They all went for the water uh, without the heroin after a while. Same way human beings, when we're in isolation, we all connect with whatever we we can, and we destroy our lives. And when in the absence of something to connect to, we end up being depressed. And I think connection comes really easily when you're authentic and you're able to tell the truth. When you can tell the truth about who you are, people want to be with you, because they feel like they can trust you. They feel like um, what they see is what they get. And people inherently respect that and feel comfortable and safe around people who speak their truth unashamedly. And um, I believe it really helps with connection. I've noticed that in my life, especially. Like as I've started speaking the truth, I've attracted more high quality people around me. I have an c- environment and a community around me that I feel very connected to, which leaves me feeling fulfilled, which is why I live here in this little town in the Dominican Republic, um, apart from the fact that it's beautiful and on the ocean i can kite surf every day there's a community that i feel really connected to and i don't want to leave because of the community and i think that's a key component to living a fulfilled life is being connected to a community and you can't do that when you're keeping secrets and
0: you're withholding who you are i love that it's an awesome point i'm glad you mentioned the relationships because that makes a good little segue because that's definitely something i want to talk to you about like um I mean, I I know there's different descriptions, five, you know, five types, seven, nine, but relationships, like you kind of like boil it down to sort of like three main sort of stages that relationships naturally go through. And often when we're in a stage which maybe feels, I know, uncomfortable at the time, often we're thinking like, do do a lot of people jump to the conclusion that, okay, this relationship isn't meant to be. But once you understand these stages, it's basically, first of all, could you you please explain these three stages that relationships naturally go through? Okay, perfect. So,
1: relationships tend to go through three basic, primary stages, and these three stages happen in all areas of life, With so it's own personal development, you can see them um, in many, many different areas. And the stages are the romance stage, the power struggle stage, and mature love. The romance stage, this is the one we all love, this is the one Hollywood has kind of put on a pedestal and said, this is what true love looks like, this is when you meet your soulmate and you gaze into their eyes and, you know, you see parts. And it's the most immature form of love, and you're literally high on drugs, you've got oxytocin, vasopressin, phenylthylamine all these chemicals in your brain that make you see the other person through rose-tinted glasses, so you only see they're good, and you only show them the good side of you. And it's nature's way of having you come together and kind of connect, but it's a very, in one sense, unhealthily dependent way of being, because you can't feel good without the other person. You're like, I need you to feel good, you're my drug. and the mistake a lot of us make when we're looking for love is we look for somebody where we feel that inherent pull, that drug addiction, mm. and then we wonder why it goes wrong, just like an addiction, uh, an addict. When you know the drug gets taken away, they go into withdrawals. Well, that's stage two, the power struggle. So anywhere between two months and two years into your relationship, once one or both of you perceive some form of permanence to the relationship, like you get engaged, or you move in together, or you get married, like some kind of, it becomes permanent. You enter into the dreaded power struggle. And The power struggle. <laughs> If this is the romance stage, then this is the power struggle. It's designed to have you separate um, and become two independent people, separate, able to be autonomous and independent. And the test of this power struggle is, can we stay connected? Can we not move so far apart that we actually move out of the screen and we no longer have a relationship? Because then, you, then you've lost the relationship. Can we keep our healthy distance so that we are, we're still connected inside this relationship and not having to be totally dependent on each other? And that is the power struggle stage is where you start fighting. This is where affairs happen. This is where most uh, uh, marriages end in divorce. I would say 95% of relationships end because of the power struggle. Really People good. don't have the t- school, the, t- the tools and the skills. I said the stills and the stool <laughs> <laughs> to get through the power struggle stage. And so that's the work that I do. I help couples move from the power struggle stage into the third stage, which is mature love. Um, and if you're lucky enough to make it to the power struggle stage without breaking up, you enter into mature love. And if this was the romance stage and this was the power struggle stage, then mature love is like this. You're able to flex and flow between being dependent and independent, healthily dependent and independent. Our culture only supports this. It only supports independence.
0: Individualism. And that's
1: why so many relationships get into troubles, because we refuse to depend on each other. When we are inherently dependent on each other, there's research that shows that we can regulate our heartbeats, our partner's heartbeats, we can regulate their emotions, we can regulate their blood pressure. Um, we, the minute we be form a couple and a relationship, we become a third entity, the relationship form. So there's you, there's me, and then there's this third entity called the relationship, which is greater than the both of us, more complex than the both of us. And if you nurture the relationship, you'll probably end up having a happy relationship. If you try and get your own needs met, you'll probably end up being very unhappy and the relationship will fall apart. And that's what most of us do in the power struggle. We fight to get our needs met mm-hmm. and our partner doesn't meet our needs and the relationship falls apart. So what I help couples, I help them go from here to the flex flow interdependence stage. And you could think of these three stages as moving from dependent to independent to interdependence. So it's about we. Yeah, to a we, to becoming a team. Yeah. And that's essentially the whole point of having a relationship is to become a team because the team is far more powerful than each of you are individually. If you become a great team, you can do more. And there's been research that shows that couples who are healthily interdependent are more autonomous in the world, make more money, report higher levels of satisfaction, fulfillment, get sick less. Um, so like these are all extraordinary things just from having a happy relationship. If you're in an unhappy relationship, you're going to get sick more. You're probably your job's going to suffer. Um, you're going to get depressed. I mean, it's 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 pretty severe the impact
0: of being stuck in the past level stage. It's not a happy time. Yeah. So those are three stages. And one thing that was fascinating was I was listening to a couple of other like interviews and podcasts that you you, you did, and and um, one thing which I mean another thing which I I'd, I'd never heard of before was um, about attachment archetypes. That was that was and it's hearing you describe and understanding them. How what are attachment archetypes, and how sort of does understanding them completely transform our relationships? I think I think what you want things you said yeah. is that you know if you'd known about this years ago, I mean like all your relationships from then onwards would have been completely different, you know? Completely different, yeah. So
1: this is probably like the two most important distinctions I ever discovered about relationships. One was the three stages, because they made me understand where I am mm-hmm. in my relationship. And for the first time, I said, okay, I'm normal. It's not that I, I don't know how to do relationships. It's that I've always just got stuck in the power struggle and never knew how to get to the mature love.
0: Yeah. The second
1: distinction was these attachment archetypes. So there's a huge body of research for the last 25 years, pioneered by a guy called John Bowlby, called attachment theory. And attachment theory initially started out as studying the bond between a mother and a child, determining how that bond affected their psychological makeup as they grew up into adults. It later developed into studying the bond between um, adult uh, relationships, between husbands and wives. And what they discovered is that there are, depending on which model you and which research you read, anywhere from four to seven attachment archetypes. I'm just going to keep this simple and talk about... um, Three, because okay. the fourth one is is such a small percentage of the population. These are the three primary ones that the 98% of the population will generally fall into and relate to. The first is secure. Fifty percent of the population are secure, and what that means is in a romantic relationship they're securely connected, they're able to depend on their partner, they're able to ask for support and be dependent, not in a codependent, unhealthy, needy way, but in like, honey. I'm feeling really sick, please will you help me kind of way, or mm. honey, my father just died, I need a shoulder, will you just like hold me mm. for an hour while I cry my eyes out? Or honey, I just lost my job, can you help pay the bills for the next month until I find another one? Like, healthily-dependent, yeah. team-mate kind of way. These are secure people. They're not afraid to ask for help. they're not afraid to be vulnerable, they're not afraid to admit their weaknesses, and they get on in relationships just fine, they make it through the power struggle without too much of a fuss you know, three, four months and they're probably through it. They figure it out on their own. They never end up in my, in my office, um, you know, or doing any of my online programs because they figure out their own relationship problems and they end up happy. And they often are not single for too long because they get snapped up by the next secure person and they go off to have, you know, long 15, 20, lifetime long relationships because they figure shit out. On the other hand, you've got two insecure archetypes. And these make up the other other 50% of the population. I think about 25% is what they call avoidant. And I call these people turtles because when they feel anxious or insecure in their relationship, they hide in their shell like a turtle and they disappear. Um, They go numb, they shut down emotionally, and they retreat and withdraw, and they need lots of space because secretly they're terrified of being rejected or being engulfed by their partner. And what happens is as they retreat, they're no longer present in the relationship, and their partner gets terrified. And their partner is usually the other uh, attachment style, which is what the attachment theorists call anxious attachment, what I call the hailstorm hailstorm be, yes that kind of being like a hailstorm. They're like they're ha- like a thunderstorm hailing down on their partner all- the time criticism. They can be demanding, they can be needy, they can be. Um, they can try and make their partner jealous. They can be manipulative. They often threaten the relationship or they, uh, they keep score. Um, I mean, they do a whole lot of behaviors that are known as attachment. I'm sorry, that are known as protest behaviors. And these protest behaviors are kind of indirect ways of getting their partner's attention and getting reassurance that they're loved. So if you imagine a child who lost its parents in a supermarket and is wailing at the top of its lungs and is unconsolable. That's nature's way of you know alerting the mother that hey you've lost your child, go find your child In an adult relationship, these hailstorms they do the adult equivalent of that which is getting critical demanding, getting needy, getting angry, getting upset and what they're secretly trying to do is get their partner's attention and the, the, the message that they're unable to communicate directly is help. I'm terrified you're going to abandon me, I'm scared, please help me, don't leave me, come back. And of course, their turtle partner retreats into their shell, which makes the hailstorm partner even more terrified, which makes them protest and more critical and more hailstorms, which makes the turtle partner more terrified, which makes the turtle retreat even further into their shell and go even more numb, and round and round this couple goes. And this is 99% of the couples that I work with fall into this dynamic. Um, and so about 23% of the population are hailstorms which leaves the last 2%, which is what is known in the attachment literature as fearful avoidant. And they're a combination of hailstorm and uh, turtle. They're very rare. They tend to come from chaotic backgrounds with alcoholic parents and some form of chaos in their childhood. And they struggle the most in relationships. So I find a lot of them coming to me in my programs as well. Um, that one was, 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 was
0: their combo. It's one person with both hailstone and turtle attributes. <laughs> tendencies. Yes, gotcha. exactly. They use both strategies and they're known as fearful
1: avoidance, that's their kind of um, uh, technical term for that type, and they're the last 2%. So you've got 50% of the population is secure, about 25% percent to uh, a turtle, 23% percent is a hailstorm, and 2% is kind of like a combination of turtle and hailstorm.
0: And if you want to hear,
1: learn more about these, there's some free videos at loveatfirstfight.com, um, my website, and you can just go watch the videos, i go into more detail about it. There's a little test there where you can find out, are you a hailstorm or a turtle?
0: um so in it's so and interesting because you're hearing that and awesome. you suddenly when are you hearing that yeah I was only like am I a bit of that one? Oh wait oh actually wait, that sounds a bit familiar one really? do you relate to the most Duncan I'm a hailstorm you're a hailstorm um it was weird because when I was hearing you I, I feel like I've got little bits I, I wouldn't say I was an out and out hailstorm I wouldn't say I was an out and out turtle but I can I can hear tiny little bit attributes but then I also feel like I've, I've got, I'm generally quite secure but then little um generally secure but then I'd say like bursts of hailstone or turtle I can, I can kind of resonate in individual situations maybe we're in different dynamics like times Here's when I might the interesting thing about
1: um, just to, kind of, to put it in context for you uh, Duncan these traits won't show up when you're single okay. and they won't show up when you feel safe and secure in your relationship
0: uh, sure. they okay. only show up <laughs>
1: when you feel threatened with the security of your relationship yeah. with your partner so you start to feel afraid that your partner's going to abandon you and you're a hailstorm. That's when it's going to show up and you're going to go batshit crazy. When you're, If you're a turtle and you start to feel like you're being criticized by the one person you count on to have your back, your partner, the one person you never want to leave you, your partner, you're going to retreat into your shell and disappear and you'll be gone. Bye-bye, you maybe need two or three days to come back you know, before you'll be able to be present. So that's the thing. Like you, you might look at your life and go, well generally I'm totally secure. The way you tell is you look at like what happens when my relationships aren't working.
0: Yeah, nice. maybe a bit, maybe hey, a bit of turtle actually. Then we'll, we'll
1: you're a bit of a turtle. Okay,
0: maybe on. yeah, as in, because yeah, gen generally complete present, but then I guess. It's almost maybe like a, uh, yeah, actually, no, that does sound about right, because yeah, it's normally good, and then maybe the wall comes up a bit, and then suddenly, yeah. like, oh, shit, like, I'm not coming back for two or three days, and then it's like, slowly, slowly, it's exactly. in, no, you, the wall goes up, so no one can hurt you, but then at the same time, you, you're making yourself more numb, and then nothing can, you, you, don't, you lose that sort of connection, so you're not getting hurt, but you're not also feeling, yeah, shit, I think I'm a turtle, aren't I? <laughs> that's, that's
1: part of your culture, you know, part of the English masculine culture, the English male culture is architecturally turtle, you know, if you want to look at the, the poster boy for the turtle archetype, it's James Bond. It's the English hero, James Bond. He never can st- hold down a relationship. He shuts down his feelings. He compartmentalizes all his pain, and he is the hero. Yeah. So in one sense, the turtle has become the icon of the successful man in our uh, culture, which is what has screwed up so many relationships, is men don't want to be vulnerable because they don't want to be seen as weak. They're like, I'm gonna be the strong James Bond turtle. And their women are like, Do you not have feelings? Like, oh my god, like are you a robot? And the men are like, feelings? What feelings? You know no, so it's <laughs> Stiff up a lip, sir.
0: It's so sir. Yeah. Inter- it's so interesting hearing this. Because yeah, it's in like I'm 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 pretty um I, I, I don't easily let my wall down at all. and um, the wall's often up. But then w- once once it's down, then I'm completely, completely um, uh, completely there in terms of total connection as in like then we'll like be completely vulnerable like you know but then but then if, if the wall suddenly goes up then it's really hard to get it back down or it rarely comes down but when it does then I'm completely there connected but I don't just let it down for anyone it it, it takes I think quite a long time to get that wall down to let the somebody fact in. The
1: of you saying I don't usually let my walls down easily is you letting your walls down and being vulnerable that's you going you know, a turtle would never have said that if you were in turtle mode. And for those of you who are turtles out there, you know, Duncan's just actually given you a secret trick. The way you actually get beyond your turtle tendencies and stay present instead of running away is admitting you want to run away. That's the first step. If you can own, I want to run away, and say that out loud, I want to run away but I'm going to stay present now, the desire to run away like, minimizes by 50%. You've already like, taken half of your desire to run away away just by saying it and owning it out loud.
0: It's powerful. Bruce, I, I, could, I, I, could, I could talk to you all day long. We're going to hit some speed round <laughs> questions to finish up. You, you touched on this earlier, but what does a fulfilled life mean to you?
1: You know, you, you told me you were going to ask me this question at the end of the thing, so I did some thinking about it, because I didn't want to just throw out the first thing that came to my head, because I was like, this is an important question, like, what is a fulfilled life? And I decided that for me, a fulfilled life is a life where I can wake up every day and contribute in a meaningful way, a meaningful way to me. So the way that I feel fulfilled is I wake up every day and help people save their marriages and save their relationships, and that's meaningful to me because I've destroyed so many of my own relationships, and I know the pain of heartbreak so intimately that like if I can help somebody or a couple avoid that, that makes me feel like my whole existence is worthwhile. And uh, so I think that's what it is: finding your thing, your meaning, and being able to con- use it to contribute
0: and make a difference. That's awesome. What is one thing all our listeners can do today that will have a massive positive effect on their lives? Okay, so
1: tell the truth. If you're holding something big that you know you should have told the truth about, just go and do it. That is probably what's going to give you the highest leverage results in terms of feeling alive and fulfilled straight away. It's going to be scary. Things may get worse before they get better. Go watch my uh, uh, TEDx talk on this because it will give you a few more hints. But I think that's probably the the highest leverage thing you can do is just be
0: who you are unashamedly. Um, I yeah. It. I love it. And which book would you say has had the biggest positive impact on your life? I can't answer
1: that question without giving
0: you at least five. So <laughs> I wrote like
1: five down. So in terms of the context of everything we've been talking about, a yeah. um, couple of books. One is called Love Sense by Dr. Sue Johnson. Um, she's a researcher, and this book outli- basically outlines, in layman's terms, all the latest scientific research about love and romantic relationships, and turns everything we know about love on its head, and starts to make sense of love for the first time. So you know the whole idea that independence is a healthy trait, she throws that out the window and goes, if you know, if you pride yourself on being independent, you're going to suck in relationships. The healthiest trait is interdependence, um, and she kind of like it's a really good easy read. Read that book. Another one is a book called Attached, which is, explains attachment theory in layman's terms. talks about hailstorms and turtles. Um, another one that made a big impact on my life, if you're in a romantic relationship and you want to understand how to keep sexual passion alive, is a book called Blue Truth by David Data, D-E-I-D-A. Um, have you read any of David Data's stuff? I haven't, eh Oh, you're going to love this. Okay, then <laughs> another book by David Data that is just an absolute must-read for anybody wanting to become powerful as a man in relationship is The Way of the Superior Man by David Data. So his two books are Blue Truth and The Way of the Superior Man. Those are two of my favorite books he's written, David, D-E-I-D-A. And then my final book, for those of you who are philosophy geeks, um, (laughs) I am cheating, but I, I just couldn't do it justice. These are such good books, I feel like I would be not serving anybody by not saying them. Is um, a brief history of everything by Ken Wilber. Um, he's an incredible philosopher, and that book, although it is,
0: it's a hard read, it's not an easy read. It's probably the most profound book I ever read. Great choices. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I've got, I'm now, on, I'm on this reading challenge at the moment, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna be taking down a lot of those. So that's awesome. Last but not least, how can people stay in touch? Where can we send them?
1: Love at first, fight with an
0: F. Dot com. Um,
1: go sign up for my uh, uh, free videos there and you'll get on my mailing list and um, I give lots of free information away about having great happy relationships and uh,
0: how to get beyond your attachment style if you're a hailstorm and a turtle and how to move into mature love the third Bruce I've absolutely loved this chat it's been so so good I'm really glad we met I think let me just check Yep, yeah, we're, we're still recording perfect We've, we actually did it we made it, we made it over the finish line. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, I appreciate you giving up your time and it's, yeah, it's been absolutely fascinating. So thank you so much. Well,
1: I, before we go, it's, it's first, it's my pleasure. And secondly, I appreciate you for taking the trouble to do thorough research on who I am and what I do before coming to this interview. I can tell you really care. And that for me, as, as somebody who does a lot of interviews is so rare And I have no doubt you're going to fly. And I want to watch the rest of your podcasts now because I know if you put as much love into them as you put into this one, they're all going to be awesome.